You know, it's helpful to uh, many times to know the backstory in a circumstance or in a situation. Uh, you may have had a favorite athlete or a favorite person that you know of who's a celebrity or whatever, or someone who's accomplished something, and uh, you, you knew their story to some degree. I mean, you saw their success, but it was only when you knew the backstory, everything that was kind of behind the scenes, that really made you appreciate their accomplishment or you know, what they had experienced even a little bit more. You know, we, we appreciate backstories. Maybe for you, you've met someone you know, in your life that uh, you, maybe you didn't get along with them so much and they kind of rubbed you the wrong way. And then you knew the backstory and you thought, that's why they are the way they are. You know, the backstory is helpful at times. Well, whenever we read scripture, we find much the same, that the backstory helps us to understand. And for us as Christians, there is a real, real danger that when we come to a time like the Lord's Supper or when we hear the message of the gospel to where we sometimes almost just close our ears a bit because we've heard that message so often it's become a part of who we are to where we, if we're not careful, if we forget the backstory where we allow it to lose the impact that it should have in our lives. Well, this morning I want us to look a little bit at the backstory because the gospel goes way back beyond just the New Testament. It goes all the way deep into the Old Testament. Honestly, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, to the very beginning, even where Adam and Eve sinned, and God uh, uh, provided the skin of an animal to cover them in their sin. Uh, They saw death for the very first time in the Garden of Eden. Uh, the, The picture of payment for sin goes all the way back to the very beginning. But this morning, I want us to take a look at a passage in the book of Numbers chapter 21 briefly before we do the Lord's Supper. Numbers chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. In just a moment, we'll begin to read through that. If you don't have a Bible, you can read with us when we look at it on the overhead here in just a few moments. Numbers chapter 21 captures for us, we can bring that off. We don't have to read read it yet, quite yet. Numbers paints for us a picture of the wandering of the people of Israel. Just to give you a little bit of the the setting for what we're going to look at here in just a moment in Numbers 21. We find that God's people, the people of Israel, had been set free from slavery in Egypt. We just spent five weeks or so looking at the life of Moses or the call of Moses and how God had called the people of Israel out of slavery in the land of Egypt. Well, Numbers helps us to capture a little bit of what they experienced as they left the land of Egypt and as they move towards the promised land. Now, for most, of, for most Christians, really their, their uh, understanding of the book of Numbers is that it is the most boring book in all the Bible because here's what a lot of people's understanding is. I started to read the Bible through uh, on January 1st, and I started with Genesis chapter 1, and I got to... Uh, the book of Exodus, and, and that was interesting. I got to Leviticus, and I barely made it through that. And then I got to Numbers, and I just quit. And so I didn't read the whole Bible through. I just sort of got dropped off somewhere in the book of Numbers, and I never went back again. Well, you don't want to look at that way the book of Numbers because it is an extremely engaging book in the Bible. Uh, it is a long book of Scripture, but it covers for us a lot of the details between the Israelites when they started out of slavery and towards the Promised Land. So it captures a lot of the ups, the downs, the lessons learned. More importantly, it captures for us what God did through that through that particular season in the uh, history of the people of Israel. Well, Numbers chapter 21 paints for us a a very interesting picture. If you've never read this passage before, you're going to think, what in the world was going on here? Uh, And yet you're also going to probably say, well, that sounds a little bit familiar, the story there, Numbers chapter 21. So let's go ahead and jump in. Chapter 21, if you don't have your Bibles, read with me on the overhead. We're going to begin in verse 4. And just see a little bit of this dramatic story and what God did in the midst of it. It says, Then they, that's the people of Israel, probably about two million total, set out from Mount Or by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. 
And the people became impatient because of the journey. If you've ever become impatient, you know, for anything, like sitting at a red light or people in front of you, uh, uh, you know, in line that aren't going so quickly, well, you understand a little bit of what they felt like. They were impatient because the journey was not going the way that they had hoped. It says, the people then spoke against God and Moses, who was their leader, and this is what they said. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. All right, so here's the picture here. You've got these people, the people of Israel, <laughs> that have just been set free from slavery, right, in Egypt, uh, in their fairly recent past. And so now they're making their way towards the promised land. It's because of their own sin that this trip has taken longer than it should have to begin with. And now they come to this particular place in the, in the narrative where they are beginning to grumble and to complain against God. Their complaint here, as you can see, was, why did you take us out of slavery to begin with? Because at least we had food there. Now Moses, now God, thanks a lot. You brought us out to the middle of nowhere where we're just going to die. And we don't have any food. We don't have any water. And what food we do have is horrible. And so uh, thanks a lot for what you've done to us. Now the issue here is not just that they were complaining. The issue is not just that they were grumbling. Really, the big overarching issue is that they had a problem trusting God because God had already made promises to them that he was going to see them through. And so the issue was bigger than complaints. The issue was a lack of trust in God and in his provision and in his promises. All right, so let's move on to the next, to the next verse. It says, so here was God's response. This is, <laughs> this is a bit dramatic. It says, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. When it says they were fiery serpents, it doesn't mean like something off a video game, you know, where fire was shooting out. It doesn't mean that. It just, this was an Old Testament um, expression that these were venomous snakes. And so these were poisonous snakes that bit the, many of the people. And when they were bitten, they would die. Last night, uh, I had a dream uh, during the night that our next, the yard next door to us had snakes all in that, big gigantic snakes. And now I think I know why I had this dream, because of preparing for this particular little uh, little uh, message this morning. And so God sent, it says, fiery serpents, venomous snakes amongst the people here, and the people of Israel died. Now you have got to get a sense of what this must have been like. Don't you dare just read this passage and move on. Let your mind run with what this must have looked like. Because you've got the people of Israel, again, probably two million of these people, that are in the middle of nowhere, they're in the wilderness, and because of their failure to trust God, demonstrated through their grumbling and their complaining, God now chooses in this instance to judge their sin, which he has every right to do. When you're God, you can judge sin whenever you want to. In this instance, God chose to judge their sin. And so the way he did it was to send these venomous snakes, and where people would become bitten, they would die. And you can imagine the screams and the terror and the agony, and the scene that must have unfolded as all of this began to play itself out in real time. Verse 7 says, So the people came to Moses, their leader, and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. All right, look what happens next. Next screen. So the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, Set it on a standard. All right? He wasn't telling him to create. Only God can create. He says, make a fiery serpent. We'll see what it looks like in a second. Set it on a standard, which would have been a way to elevate it. Probably some type of a, of a pole, kind of like when you raise your banner, right? This is what you have in mind. 
It says, and it shall come about that when, that when everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. That is an extremely dramatic passage of Scripture. Happened exactly the way the Bible tells us it happened. A, a story that you won't read of exactly like this anywhere else in the Old Testament. You probably read that and think, wow, I didn't even know that was in there. That, that is some interesting stuff. But then somewhere in the back of your mind you're thinking, but that also sounds strangely familiar. You see, there were some interesting things taking place in that passage of Scripture. One thing that was happening was that God judged sin. God is a God who judges sin. He has to because he's holy. In this instance, he chose to judge it in this particular fashion at this particular point in time. But it's not uncommon for God, for God to judge sin. It's what, he, it's what he does. It's what he will do one day in eternity. A second thing that stands out about this particular passage is that the people recognized their own sin when they saw the consequences of it around them. We often look at consequences of sin as something that is terrible, which they are. None of us like to deal with consequences of our sin. However, consequences are a very good tool that redirect us and that teach us lessons that we need to learn. And in this particular instance, the people of Israel, they learned what God wanted when they saw the consequences of their sin. Not just seeing the consequences, but they took ownership of their own sin. Look again what it says at verse 7 specifically. So the people came to Moses, they said, we have sinned. They saw what was happening and they owned their own sin. They took ownership of it. We have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord, he says, uh, the people say to Moses. Moses, would you please, on our behalf, approach God and have a conversation with him for us? Because we're dying here, literally. Our people are dying, and we don't know when we individually may be next. And so because of our sin, we own it. You don't have to convince us anymore. Moses, could you please just go to God, have a conversation with him, that he might do something about this problem that is plaguing us. And so they saw the consequences. They owned their sin. They pled for God to provide some, some intercessor, some, some remedy and that's exactly what God did. God provided a remedy. You look again at the next verse, verse 8. The remedy was a little bit dramatic. Let's look at verse 8. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard. And then ultimately, when everyone who is bitten looks at it, he's going to live. This was a very specific remedy. This was a remedy right down to a person. Not, okay, I'm going to provide this remedy and then everybody's just going to be healed. No, there is still a response that has to come in this particular passage. You, you uh, Moses, I will give you a remedy. It's going to seem a little bit out of the ordinary. It's going to be a bronze serpent put on a big tall pole. You're going to hold it up, but still the people have to respond. People are going to be dying left and right just the same. This, this remedy that I'm going to provide cannot be altered. You can't say, well, we don't have enough money. We don't have uh, you know, all the bronze that we need, so we're not going to make a bronze serpent. Let's just make a bronze you know, cricket, <laughs> you know, smaller, less expensive. Let's just do that. Same basic principle, God. We're just going to do this. No, you couldn't change it. God said, this is what you need to do to provide remedy for these people who are dying. Cannot change it, cannot alter it, cannot replace it. This is what you do may not seem to make perfect sense in our understanding, but from God's perspective, there is a reason. And the people individually had to respond that when they were bitten, they then had to look ultimately to the remedy so that they might be healed. John chapter 3 gives us perhaps the most famous passage 
of Scripture, the most famous verse of Scripture in all the Bible. And yet, look at the context of what comes right before John chapter 3. Just read on the overhead, John 3, verses 14 through 16. Let's bring those verses up. It says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. That's a reference to Numbers chapter 21. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus is speaking here. He says, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. See, that's the backstory to the most famous verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You and I find our place smack in the middle of Numbers 21. They're not snakes that plague us, it's our own sin. And yet as our own sin causes people to die spiritually, even we ourselves, all around us, God has taken the initiative to send a remedy. And his name is Jesus. This remedy named Jesus, this message that details him called the gospel, cannot be altered, it cannot be changed, it cannot be replaced, nothing can be added to it or taken from it. The only way for us to have a relationship with God is for us, just as back in the Old Testament, to own our own sin, to admit that we have fallen before God, that we've sinned and rebelled against Him. We must then look to the remedy that He has provided down to a person individually. Mama and Daddy can't be saved for us. Grandma and Grandpa can't be saved for us. No church can take our place individually down to a person. We must choose to look to the remedy that God has provided. And that person, that remedy, was lifted up high for all the world to see, not on a standard, but on a cross. So that just as John 3.16 says, all who ultimately look to him in repentance and faith will be healed, will be delivered, will be set free, and will be saved. You see, Paul had much the same thing in mind in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he spoke specifically, specifically of Jesus. He says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved. You see, God wants you to know him. You may have never given your life to Christ you may be here for the first time. You may have been here for years and years, but in your heart, you know, I have never given my life truly to Jesus Christ. I, I'm religious, and I read my Bible, and I pray, but I've never chosen to lay down my sin, my rebellion, and to follow with all of who I am, the person of Jesus. Understand today that God wants you to know him. He says that he desires for all men to be saved, for all to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator, you know what a mediator is? You know what this is because of perhaps the business world or the legal system. A mediator is one who stands between two parties that are in conflict to try to bring peace. That's what a mediator does. And the Bible describes Jesus Christ as our mediator because God, who is holy, is ultimately separated from we people who are sinners. And lest we have a mediator who joins the two and pays for the penalty of our sin and for sin itself, we'll be forever separated from God. Paul describes Jesus as our mediator, the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. It wasn't a bronze serpent on a pole raised high to bring healing. This was a physical, literal death that Jesus died. And when he died it, he died it so that once and for all, sin could be paid for, and all who turn from it can have a relationship with God. 
you know, we look at a story like that in Numbers 21 and we think, wow, boy, that's a, that's a different one. <laughs> and we look at the message of the gospel and people still today say much the same. Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that it's the message of the gospel that is foolishness to the Greeks, stumbling block to the Jews. And yet it's that one message and that message alone that brings salvation. You know, for us in just a moment as believers, as followers of Christ, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And knowing the backstory that from the very beginning this was on the heart of God, his desire to save people. It helps us to understand that in just a moment as Christians, when we take of the bread, that it represents a sacrifice, the giving of a body, the body of Christ willingly for us. That when we take of the cup, that it's going to represent the blood of Christ that was shed. The Hebrews tells us was, was a absolutely mandatory that without it, there is no forgiveness of sins. That Jesus, our mediator, has been our perfect sacrifice and perfect substitute. And that as we take of the bread and as we take of the cup, it reminds us of the story that came long before we ever stepped into this world. That God had you on his mind. He knew your sin. And as soon as you owned it, placed your faith in Christ, you became a part of his family. If you've never given your life to Christ, there is no better time than today, no better place than right here for you to choose the biggest decision you'll ever choose, the biggest thing that you'll ever, that you'll ever do, choose to do. Is to, who, is to be who will be your Lord, the choice of who will be your Lord. And today, Jesus is the only one worthy. And maybe for you, having never given your life to him, maybe today is the day where you can nail it down once and for all, choose who will be my Savior, who will be my Lord, to turn from your sin and to invite Christ to take over. Let's pray. God, this whole service, as we've sung, we've sung about you. Lord, our surroundings, the rain hitting the roof, remind us that you're a God who creates the seasons. Everything that we know, you do them and bring them just in time. And yet even creation bears the marks of sin. Tornadoes, hurricanes, devastation. Lord, even as Romans says, your creation longs, longs for the day of redemption. And yet, Lord, here we sit here in this place, and we are broken people without you. God, some of us can look back and we can remember what life was like before we knew you. We can remember what it was like, the devastation of sin and choices that were made before Christ was in the center of our lives. We don't have to look far back, perhaps, to remember the hopelessness and the helplessness and, and the consequences that would come whenever life would be lived with you on the margins and not where you needed to be. Lord, we come today and we celebrate the Lord's Supper because for many here in this room, we not only remember the past, but we remember the day that we came to know you, the day when we prayed and we gave our lives to Jesus. And Lord, maybe we've forgotten the backstory. Maybe some of this has just become ritual. Maybe our lives have become more about religion as opposed to really walking in relationship with you. Maybe we've allowed sin to take root in our lives, or maybe we've just lost hope for some reason, and we've forgotten that you're a God who splits seas. You're a God who breathes and things come into existence. That you're a God who knows the beginning from the end and everything you want to do in between. That you're a God who raises the dead and one day will raise those who follow and who know Christ. That you're a God who prepares our place in all of eternity that we can bank on it and count on it and live with our eyes set towards it. Lord, maybe we've lost sight of the fact that you're a God who always comes through for your people who trust you. 
that you're a God who never lets us down. You'll never jerk the rug out from under us. You'll never leave us or lead us astray. Lord, we can always trust in you. Your love is always unconditional. Your mercy is always willing to reach to whatever gutter, gutter we may find ourselves in. And Lord, maybe for some today, we've just lost sight of who you are. And it's a day like this and something like the Lord's Supper that reminds us that our part in the picture is, is a part that people have filled for centuries. Lost and undone and broken people, healed and forgiven and set free by, the, by you, our Savior. And so today, God, we remember. We remember what it cost you. We remember who we were. And we recognize who we are today. And that it's all because of you. And so, God, for those who know you this morning, I pray that these next few moments will be, will be just worship. And, Lord, that we would recognize the great cost that you paid willingly, gladly for us. And for those this morning who don't know you, Lord, I pray that right where they sit, if your spirit is drawing them to yourself, that they would let go, that they would own their sin and confess it to you, and leave it where it sits. And that right now today, that they would invite Jesus to come in and to forgive and to take over. Choosing to follow him as their Lord and as their Savior from this day on. And so God, thank you for this simple moment. The sound of the rain. An opportunity to worship. Lord, bless this time we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.